everyone. Welcome back to From the Front Row, brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. My name is Eric Ramos, and if this is your first time with us, welcome. We're a student-run podcast that talks about major issues in public health and how they're relevant to anyone, both in and outside the field of public health. Today, we're speaking with the 2022 Outstanding Alumni Award recipients, Dr. Brett Thaney and Dr. Kenneth Sag. Dr. Brett Thaney earned his Doctor of Pharmacy degree in 2007 and a Master of Science degree in Epidemiology in 2016. He is now Clinical Associate Professor of Pharmacy Practice and Emergency Medicine here at the University of Iowa. Dr. Kenneth Sag earned his MD at Northwestern University in 1986 and his Master of Science degree in Preventative Medicine and Environmental Health Epidemiology in 1993. He is now the Waters Endowed Chair in the Department of Medicine and a Professor and Director of Clinical Immunology and Rheumatology at the University of Alabama, Birmingham. Both are here today to chat about their career paths and advice for current students. Welcome back to the University of Iowa. We're happy to have you back with us today. To start, can you each talk a little bit about your career path and your current work? Go ahead, Brett. Yeah, so um, 15 years ago, I started as the first emergency medicine uh, clinical pharmacist here at the University of Iowa. Didn't really have much intention of doing research or uh, education. but then I kind of had a career trajectory change and went back and got my master's in clinical investigation. And it's kind of changed my pathway. So now I have a joint appointment, like you mentioned, at the College of Pharmacy and uh, Carver College of Medicine. Yeah. So I was here uh, starting in 1990. I came to the University of Iowa as a rheumatology fellow. and recognized pretty quickly into my fellowship that I wanted to do research, but I didn't see myself spending my career in the lab. And so I, at that time, partnered up with people in what was then called preventive medicine and uh, also in general internal medicine. We didn't have anyone in rheumatology who was doing clinical investigation, and they encouraged me to, um, to seek further training. So I had a chance to get an MSPH while I was here, and or MSC, I guess it's an MSPH at my institution, so I forget the different designations. But in any event, um, while here, I had a chance to work with Bob Wallace and Betsy Krishillis, and uh, we're talking with Brett, some of his colleagues over in the School of Pharmacy, and uh, doing some pharmacoeconomic things. And things were going pretty well. We started a population-based epi program, established a cohort. Uh, had got involved in some clinical trials thanks to uh, Jim Torner's encouragement to participate in osteoporosis work. But I had a really nice opportunity, both personally and professionally, to move down to UAB. And uh, since there, have been involved still in um, population-based epi, but have shifted a little bit more towards implementation science and behavioral interventions, have, have maintained an interest in clinical trials, uh, particularly large phase three studies in in gout and osteoporosis. And we've also had um, support from the Arthritis Institute to develop a gout center and uh, arthritis centers and have benefited from the the infrastructure at UAB that's allowed us to to build these programs. But uh, the thing that's really kind of keeps me going now is, is training the next generation. So I've started taking on leadership roles in mentoring and K grants and T grants and center directorships. And then recently as the division director, uh, the newest chapter has been uh, doing national leadership with the American College of Rheumatology. I'm finishing up my 
year as president of, of that organization. And that allows you to you take it to an even bigger level to, to help inform policy and hopefully uh, think about other ways that we can bring the next generation of investigators and, in this case, clinicians and uh, arthritis health professionals along. So it's been kind of a little um, circuitous in some ways, but, but lots of fun and always interesting. Yeah, it sounds like you both have had some great careers. I know before this, we were talking about passing the baton on, and you're now talking about the next generation. What is some advice that you would give to current public health students either entering their field or starting out the career in public health or medicine? Well, I, you know, I think that the program here at Iowa is fantastic. And, and the thing that I encourage, particularly the uh, physicians and, and people that don't have a, a background in public health to do, is to make it as quantitative as it can be. Getting uh, good at working with data is such an important skill, and regardless of whether you're the one actually eventually crunching the numbers or if you're talking to a biostatistician or a quantitative epidemiologist, you really have to understand what's going on. So understanding study design and uh, analysis for me is, is really the pivotal thing, and it's a skill that you have to have if you're going to be rigorous and you're going to be competitive. Clearly, getting the training, getting the imprimatur of being trained is important, but having those skills is, is the, uh, the, the thing that we stress for everybody. Yeah, I would agree with that sentiment. Um, you know, a lot of, I think I'll speak for the pharmacy side, we don't spend a lot of time you know, learning uh, clinical research methodology, statistics, things like that. You know, they're training us to be, you know, good pharmacists. And so, Really, what what I was lacking, and I think our you know most curriculums are lacking, is that kind of background. And I would encourage anybody who really wants to take off in a research career to pursue some sort of masters in epidemiology, biostatistics, or clinical investigation, which kind of blends the two of those together. So um, I think it just adds another layer, and really has opened up a lot of opportunities for me and. It sounds like for Ken as well. Yeah. From your guys' experience in medical education, pharmacy school, um, is population health something that you guys talk about in that education? Is there something you guys talked about, or is that kind of later on in your career that you guys touched upon kind of population health and those kind of topics? Yeah, I mean, that was something that really I didn't even think about, honestly. You know, it's kind of like see a patient, help the patient. Yeah. You know, you, you, you learn how to read evidence and evaluate evidence, but it really wasn't on a, you know, big level. So yeah, that was something that, you know, coming back to school that was brought to the uh, forefront for me. So I think, again, that's just another aspect of things that just aren't part of the curriculum currently that, uh, you know, you can obtain by coming back to school. Yeah, definitely. So let's go back to your time as a student. We kind of already done that a little bit. Planned or unplanned? Is there anything that you did as a student that you think was especially valuable? I know we kind of touched about um, touched upon the importance of data collection and quantitative data, um, and it helped you get to where you are now. Yeah, one of the pieces of advice that I give our trainees is uh, it's about the mentor a lot, and getting the didactic training is key, but finding somebody who is invested in your career and will serve as your mentor, and, and really nowadays are thinking as a mentoring team. It's a primary mentor and then other people that can bring other perspectives, big picture. Bob Wallace, for example, was a phenomenal big picture mentor. He has a perspective of what's happening nationally that's unparalleled. 
And then other people may be more technical and may help you with specific things. But finding the right person and being less, this is particularly true for clinicians. They, they, they want to work in a very specific uh, sub-discipline. They want to focus on a disease or some sort of uh, pathophysiologic process, say, in a more fundamental sense. But you, you want to get the training. It's about the training. And it doesn't really matter what, what the topic is. It's about learning things that that mentor can, can train you in. And so I remember when I started, I, Bob put me on a biometry of aging grant. I wasn't really interested in aging, but it was a chance to work with him to be on that grant. And then ultimately got involved working with a project with Betsy Krishillis and Linda Rubenstein, who was working with Betsy as a, a data manager analyst really taught me a lot of things that uh, were useful in propelling into directions that were more central to things that I ultimately wanted to do, but it was developing the skill set and the fundamentals. Yeah, I, that's absolutely 100% spot on. I think finding, uh, didactics are great, but finding that mentor, uh, the thing that was always told to me was that he should pursue a career development award. That was the big push. And luckily, um, Dr. Chris Chillis was served, served as my primary mentor, and we had a great team. Uh, unfortunately, I wasn't successful at obtaining that career development award, but it kind of launched me into, like, you know, how do you obtain these things? How do you write grants? And, you know, there's so many pieces that go into that. And she was such a great mentor along with the other team members that really just opened my eyes to you know, what, what will it take to, you know, achieve federal funding? Yeah, definitely. I really do value the importance of mentorship. I think that's something I've heard a lot throughout my own career here at University of Iowa is get a mentor, get a mentor for all the things you guys said. They really provide you with that feedback, provide you with that insight and feedback truly is a gift. So I think really having that mentor with you is especially valuable. Both of you have a clinical degree and a public health degree. How has your public health degree informed your clinical career? I know. Right, you kind of talked about that a little bit with your pharmacy school um, or your pharmacy career. Is there anything else that you'd like to, like to add about that? Well, I would just say that I, regardless of whether, even if you end up being an investigator or not, getting trained in epidemiology and quantitative methods in public health uh, as a physician makes you a much, much better physician and a much better uh, educated um, consumer of, of, the, of the information that you need to practice medicine. Being able to critically think about the literature, and it's gotten much more complicated over the years in terms of study design and all sorts of things that you pick up in the general medical journals. Just being able to read those papers and understand the strengths and limitations of, of some of the things that are done. You know, you ask, how in the world did they ever get that published in New England Journal? That's, you know, not an uncommon reaction you have sometimes when you look at it critically. On the other hand, being able to, to look through all the literature and pick out the good, the bad, and the ugly that's out there in, in the medical literature through uh, a, a critical eye of what is evidence-based medicine is, is partly what you gain from this sort of training. Yeah, I think that that's a great point, too. It's like not only even if you're not going to be the investigator, it really helps you understand uh, how to evaluate evidence, which I think is, is so important, especially with the sheer amount that comes out. You know, 
it's it's tough for anybody to stay on top of it. So if you if you can learn those methods and become more efficient at it, that's also a helpful um, thing for all clinicians. Definitely, I think as we shift more toward, as we see kind of healthcare shift toward population health, value-based health, and really evidence-based practice, I think those methods that you guys are describing of really being able to hone in on articles, really being able to put evidence-based practice at the forefront is gonna be especially important. Looking back, what led you to focus on your current area of work? When you were a student at the College of Public Health, did you think you would end up where you are now? Yeah, I, you know, it's interesting how careers take different directions and trajectories. Some of it, I'm always a fan of serendipity, being in the right place at the right time and having the right level of preparation can be very helpful. And it's a mix, in, in my view, in being a successful investigator in both focus and opportunism. You, you need to be focused. You need to have the skills. You have to have particular things in mind that you do well and that people know you can do. But you also take advantage of what comes along and things shift over time. There, there may be a new type of work or a new question. I mean, COVID being the perfect example of so many people just being ready with uh, having the skill sets needed. And even in, in my area of rheumatology, there's been just a, a plethora of questions around COVID and telehealth that we've been able to apply our interests and methodologies to. So I think that's a big part of it. And uh, it's nice if you have that clinical background because you the questions come up naturally. You, you think about things where there's gaps in evidence when you're taking care of patients or, again, reading the literature that will motivate the, the next set of research questions that you might have. Yeah, I think those are, yeah, it's having that adaptability, I think, is, is super important. You, you hit that nail on the head with COVID. We were, you know, I'm part of a research network that, it's a surveillance base, the CDC funded. We weren't doing COVID work, but when COVID came around, they said, all right, you guys can do this. And so being, you know, being a part of that was super fantastic. Um, and I've learned a lot, you know, fr from the senior investigators involved in that. But, uh, you know, as far as my trajectory, you know, I, I really enjoy obviously emergency medicine, um, but I also have a kind of, feel for infectious diseases so been kind of staying steady on that but there's always opportunities like i was able to do the nids stroke net fellowship um it was one of those opportunities that just kind of fell into my lap i didn't necessarily have a strong desire um to do stroke research at that point in my career but i looked at the team and i looked at the mentors and i said well i will learn a lot even if this isn't the kind of niche that I'm going to pursue afterward, um, it allowed me to build those relationships and work with great mentors. So I think that's also an important thing. Is like sometimes you just have to be agile and say, like, is it ne necessarily exactly what I'm in? Maybe not, but am I going to gain some valuable experience? Yeah, then you should take that opportunity. To date, what do you guys think has been the highlight of your career so far and why? I'm really... Uh pleased this year that I am taking on this role with the ACR as president, and that uh, was a long lead up to that, working through committees and uh, a leadership track. And it's um, given me a chance to, to talk with people both within and outside of even the U.S. around issues that are so central to our discipline at a time when there's a lot of new challenges. So that has been my career highlight, is, is doing that. but 
at, at UAB and at Iowa, the thing that I've really started to enjoy is seeing the success of people that I've helped train. And had a, been very lucky in a way to have some really fantastic trainees, some fellows and some postdocs who have uh, come to me. And I, several of them would have done exceptionally well, regardless of where they'd gone, because they're so brilliant. But watching them succeed, and in some ways it's similar to being a parent. You, you want your, your kids and your trainees to, uh, to exceed your, your uh, abilities and, and your accomplishments, and, and seeing them um, excel and get recognized, is, uh, you take a lot of satisfaction in that over time. Yeah, I think watching your uh, mentees succeed is, is great. Uh, I'm nowhere near uh, as accomplished as Dr. Stagg here, but the um, for emergency medicine, clinical pharmacy, it's a pretty infant uh, job, right? So I'm being 15 years on the job, I'm kind of one of the older pharmacists that have, have been in emergency medicine. So um, one of the cool things that that I'm really proud of is a friend of mine over at Loyola. We uh, got together, it's probably been about four years ago, and she had an interest in clinical research, just same as I do. And we, you know, we were doing some good stuff at our own institutions, single center stuff, but that's just less impactful. So we said, well, why don't we, you know, there's a lot of eager pharmacists out there that are doing stuff at their own centers. Why don't we create a network? And so that's what we did. We created, it's called EM FarmNet. Uh, so I'm one of the co-founders with Megan, and it's pretty cool. We have 15 sites across the United States. We've received um, some small funding. We just had our first uh, project published. But that's really cool because now we're like building this program involving more emergency medicine clinical pharmacists and kind of helping uh, mentor them or bring them up. And you know, we're we're supportive of new projects uh, in the network, and it's not just about our projects; it's about other people as well. So I think. That's that's really uh, probably my proudest accomplishment to date. Yeah, so is EM FarmNet, it's EM, right? Yeah. EM. Is EM FarmNet kind of just a place where people can come work on their projects? Can you tell me a little bit more about that? Yeah, that's a good question. So what we did was, um, Megan was, she, she knows a lot of the, the people out in the world. That's, that's like, she's really good at networking. And um, so we reached out to, to people who we, you know, seen publish um, to see if they would want to join a network. And so the way it's structured is that we, you know, the first project we kind of brought to the table and said, this is the project we're going to do. But after that, we have um, lab meetings, you know, two to three times a year where our other investigators will bring their projects to the meet to the group and we'll kind of pitch it and say, hey, what do we think about this? Is it feasible? Um, you know, is anybody interested? Is this what you're seeing, you know, at, at practice at other institutions? Because sometimes what happens is you, you practice at your own institution, and you think everybody else in the world is doing the same thing when in reality they're not. So really we kind of foster that building. And so we have projects that are in different phases and Megan and I, we try to kind of be, you know, kind of help push those projects along as well. So yeah, we're, you know, it's just a building, uh, of projects within our group and we we're always looking for outside investigators we kind of have to show that you're going to get the work done yeah. as well so 
I know we talked kind of we touched a lot about the kind of type of research that you both are doing right now, or the type of work that you're working on. Um, what is some of that research that you guys are working on for people who may not know about your careers and what you're currently working on? Well, we have a mix of things. Um, we have a center grant from the Arthritis Institute focused on gout and hyperuricemia, and it has some translational science studies in it that uh, are being done nationally, both at our institution and uh, we have collaborations in San Diego and Boston with other investigators. One of our studies, for example, is looking at how to improve the quality of care for patients with gout who come to the emergency room. Glad Brett is here. And we know that uh, a lot of people, particularly people that, that are under and uninsured, when they have a gout attack, they don't have a primary care doc to see, so they go to the ED and they get seen there. But then often there's not appropriate follow-up, and they get into this cycle and this pattern, and ultimately, while most people think a gout is just kind of a mildly disabling thing, it can actually lead to significant morbidity and even heightened mortality. So we're um, working with uh, navigators, and we're working with uh, an idea of storytelling, narrative communication, testimonials, if you will, as a way to, in the ED, communicate to patients using stories of people that look like them and maybe are similar age on uh, video clips that are uh, delivered on an iPad in the ED and the group that gets randomized to that arm of the study and seeing whether that with coupled with patient navigation might result in better outcomes. So that's just an example of the sort of behavioral intervention research that we've been interested in and we apply it in gout, we might try a study in osteoporosis. We're working now and putting together a large pragmatic trial of trying to improve care in osteoporosis, another area where therapies are underutilized. And uh, it's the fun part of all of it is is the teams working with really great people who are committed and have innovative ideas and lots and lots of energy to to do this sort of work. That's what's made it fun. Some of the work that um, I'm involved in right now, so there's another network, Emergency ID Net, and that was the um, network I mentioned when we were talking about the COVID research. And so we've done some pretty, really pretty cool stuff. Um, looked at vaccine effectiveness. Uh, we looked at um, does PPE work? This was very early on, like when we didn't have vaccines. So. That was kind of the pivot. Um, am I interested in continuing COVID uh, research? Not for the long term, um, but I've been been a part of a lot of unique projects. We we were I was a site investigator for the CODA trial, which was looking at um, appendicitis patients, whether you could just send patients home with antibiotic therapy versus an appendectomy, and turns out you can do that. And so that was kind of a big you know, paradigm shift. Um, one of the things that I'm personally writing, focusing my grants on is uh, urinary tract infections. So we're looking, uh, comparing certain antibiotics, um, kind of durations, stopping rules, and things like that. So that's really my focus where I put a lot of energy. And then the other kind of offshoot of that is looking at some of our anticoagulation reversal strategies and testing for patients who come to the emergency department. Um, we're trying to evaluate, do these uh, reversal agents actually improve outcomes, improve uh, coagulation parameters? So that's, those are, kind of, I guess, the two main areas. Yeah. 
So when you get uh, old and gray like me, one of the things that you spend time doing is helping other people with their work. Uh, and that's a lot of fun. Uh, there, there are some really good people right now that I've been reading a lot of things they've been writing. And we've got one, uh, she's not junior anymore. She just got promoted to professor. But one of my mentees is just uh, put together a really interesting study looking at ways to compare telehealth with usual care and seeing whether there's differences in outcomes and satisfaction. And then she just got a really great score on a, uh, a full-scale study on R01 to the NIH looking at um, uh, uh, COVID vaccination. And sim similar approach to what I described in the Gout ED study, where we're, we're using stories and um, in assisting people in getting access to, to booster doses, because COVID ain't going away, <laughs> despite uh, feeling a little bit better about it. And particularly for our patients that are on immunosuppressive drugs, this is a big concern. And a lot of them are, particularly in places like Alabama, and I'm sure in Iowa to some degree too, where we have a lot of people that are under unvaccinated and, and haven't gotten uh, the message. Their healthcare providers can be a, a trusted source of information, but sometimes it's people they know, or in this case, um, more of a community-based approach to trying to get them to think differently about it and, and hopefully avoid in the future bad outcomes, not just for, for COVID vaccination, but for preventive health in general. Yeah, definitely fascinating, also a little scary how much COVID-19 has kind of shifted research and shifted how we think about um, life in general as we continue to go through, what, two and a half years now into the pandemic, I think. Um, and I'm interested to see because there's really no end in sight if you think about it, um, thinking about how, the, like you mentioned, Alabama and Iowa, there are rural communities out there who, for the majority, are not vaccinated. Um, so it's interesting to see how that's going to continue to affect research. Um, we, we're talking about the research you kind of are doing now. We kind of touched upon some future work. Um, what's something you're excited about or hopeful for going forward in your career in your research? I think for me, um, the biggest thing would be, you know, just being an independent, federally funded investigator. Uh, I've spent uh, a fair amount of years uh, trying to kind of cross that threshold. And I think, you know, looking, we, we, when I look at the pharmacy model, like clinical pharmacy specifically, we need to do a better job of kind of modeling the medicine model where we have people pursuing grant funding and having more joint appointments and things like that. And I think for emergency medicine-based clinical pharmacists, we just haven't seen that. Um, you know, we've seen that with critical care and things like that. But EM, like I said, is still a pretty infant and it's, you know, it's, terms of how long we've been around but um so i kind of i want to like kind of break down those barriers and i think that's that's the biggest goal for me right now is spending all my resources and energy towards obtaining that grant funding a key to the long-term success in this academic thing is persistence and perseverance and uh it's it's encouraging to me that in um many areas of clinical investigation, there now are added funding opportunities. It's still exceptionally competitive to get money, say, from the NIH, but there's been a little bit of a, a shift in the last decade or two in recognizing the value of some of the things that, um, that we do in public health research and population-based research, epidemiology in particular. And NIH is supporting it. There's new funding entities like PCORI. There's opportunities to 
work with nonprofits. There's ways to partner more effectively with the private sector. There's better data resources. There's networks of aggregated data, PCORnet, uh, different collaboratives within the NIH that have made it more feasible to do big, important studies that are interesting and that answer questions that have great public health relevance. So that's encouraging. Trying to align the resources is challenging, and you got to really just keep knocking. And eventually, you, you know, if you have a good idea and you keep shopping it around, often there's a way to get it funded. Thank you guys so much um, for all the insight you've provided throughout the interview. And we're going to ask you one final question that we ask all our guests on every single podcast. Um, your response doesn't have to be public health related or even related to your career, so it can be about anything. Um, what is one thing you thought you knew but were later wrong about? Yeah, yeah, that was a tough one. I saw you getting ready to ask us that, and that uh, that's hard. I, I think the thing that, uh, and this is a little tough to say in a way, but the thing that has struck me is is that it doesn't necessarily get that much easier over time. It's it's tough. It's tough to do the work we do in research, but what does change is despite having, particularly if you're on soft money, which is what research funding largely is, some people may have support through endowments and other things, but most of us support ourselves through grants, and you're competing all the time. And you're really only as good to some degree as your last funding. There is some value to cumulative success, but it's modest. But you become more used to it, and you become more confident, and you become more assured that you're going to find a way to do it, and that you're going to find a pathway, and that if you're persistent, it's going to work out, and there's different ways to go and different paths that you can take. And it's really interesting to see even how some people reinvent themselves over time in, in their careers. So there's, there's usually a pathway, and uh, it becomes more routine. We have a big grant due today. Uh, I'm out of town. I've got a great team working, and I know it's going to get done. I know it's going to go in, and we'll see how it goes. And that's just, that's the thing that changes, although it doesn't necessarily get a lot easier. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you're right, though. I, I think, one, you mentioned persistence. I think that's a big thing, too. But, yeah, it, you just have to, once you start to learn the pieces of the process, it gets easier. I remember my first uh, grant I put in, my big, first big grant, it was a PCORI grant, and I remember looking back about the, the, the energy it took me to get that thing across the, the finish line was just astronomical. And now, you know, I'm not doing this, that was a huge grant, but now, you know, putting in fairly large grants and it just seems to be more efficient. I think those things are, are over time, I think you just have to stay with it. And uh, once you kind of get into that groove, you can make it happen. I haven't been there yet, <laughs> hoping to um, at some point, but uh, it, it does become more easy or, you know, more efficient and easier to do. Yeah, I've never, I've never had to apply for a grant just yet. So I, I've heard it's a beast. So props to you both for all the hard work that you're doing within your careers and within your industries. Um, good luck on your grant proposal. I'm sure your team has it well under control there for you. Um, but well, thank you so much for being here today. Congratulations on your outstanding alumni awards. Um, my name is Eric Ramos. I'm joined here with Dr. Kenneth Sag and Dr. Brett Faney. Um, thank you so much and have thank a great you. day. Great, thank you great so much. to talk to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.
That's it for our episode this week. Big thanks to Dr. Kenneth Sack and Dr. Brett Faney for joining us today. This episode was hosted by me, Eric Ramos, and written by our director, Anya Morozov and edited and produced by me, Eric Ramos. You can learn more about the University of Iowa College of Public Health on Facebook. Our podcast is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support the podcast, please share it with your colleagues, friends, or anyone interested in public health. Have a suggestion for our team? You can reach us at cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. That's cph-gradambassador at uiowa.edu. This episode is brought to you by the University of Iowa College of Public Health. Until next week, stay healthy, stay curious, and take care. Eric out. (laughs) Thank <laughs> you.